Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome again uh, to Christ City Church. It's good to hear uh, everybody greeting each other. Um, my name is Matthew. If I can call us back together real quick. My name is Matthew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. We are in a, a series on race, faith, and the kingdom of God. And Justin is going to um, be speaking to us out of Isaiah 11. So I want to invite you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word as I read Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion will feed together, and the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, I pray for Justin as he comes to preach and as we explore what it means for us as followers of Jesus to walk in the ways of Isaiah 11. Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, and that you would challenge us. Open our ears that we might hear. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, church. It's, it's a joy to be with you today. I hope um, you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep last night, uh, unless you're a parent of young children, in which case we can commiserate later. And today we uh, enter into the second half of our six-week series on race, faith, and the kingdom of God. For the last few weeks, we've been taking an intentional dive into how we, as a local church, as Christ City, can better live into our calling to be a community that better reflects and points to the kingdom of God. In all its beauty and goodness and love and inclusion and justice, this series has not been uh, Faith and Race 101, although we have clarified certain concepts where needed. And these are not just conversation content, and these are not just conversation topics. We're not just trying to explore the hypothetical or the realm of ideas. Rather, we have tried, and we are still trying, and we will continue to try to take practical steps as a community, to take steps together. Uh, though some of us have been walking this path for a while, and others may be newer to this journey, uh, I've been grateful for what, from, for what I've been hearing from small group leaders about the conversations and the work that is taking place. I know it's not always fun or easy. Uh, but I am hopeful that, for the most part, these are the strains we are feeling because we are exercising new muscles, uh, new communal muscles, talking about things that maybe we haven't talked about in the ways we haven't talked about them before. I'm grateful for what the, the working group has been doing uh, these first few weeks, and, and uh, they're, they're working to help us identify particular policies and practices to become a more equitable and inclusive church. And I'm grateful for what uh, Andrea and, and Watson have shared the last couple of weeks, the ways that they have shared and stewarded their own stories and their own identities in order to offer both comfort and challenge to us. Next week, next Sunday, we will have a guest preacher. We'll have Mark Charles with us. Mark uh, is the co-author of the book, Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing, Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Mark is part Navajo and will offer an indigenous perspective to our series, a, a, an often erased and ignored voice in conversations around race in America. And then the following week, the last week in our series, our friend Tanetta landis Ina, the founding pastor of Resurrection City Church, will help us learn more about navigating the intersections of our identities. And I'm so excited that we will get to hear from these two 
Uh, this week, we were supposed to hear from my friend Delante Golston, D.C. native and pastor of Peace Fellowship Church in Deanwood, but unfortunately he caught a virus from his daughter just last week and was unable to recover in time for today, so please keep him and his family in prayer as they are all on the mend, various states of being on the mend, and we will have him back with us uh, another time. So in the, in the few short days that I had to ask God what was mine to share with you all this morning, uh, I kept coming back to the image and the passage on which this book is based. This book is called The Wolf Shall Dwell with the Lamb, a Spirituality for Leadership in a Multicultural Community. It is by Eric Law, a, a Hong Kong-born Episcopal priest whom I quoted in the first week of this series, and the title obviously is drawn from the passage we read earlier, Isaiah 11. And I came across this book a few years ago when it was recommended to me as one of the few that properly deals with power dynamics in a multiracial and multicultural setting. And even though it was written almost 20 years ago now, it has been invaluable to my practice of leadership and ministry. But let's start with the passage, Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goats. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord just as the water covers the sea. This is such a beautiful and stirring image of the biblical concept of shalom. What usually gets translated into English as peace, but that holds far deeper connotations than just the absence of conflict. Rather, the idea of shalom, of peace, it points to the presence of right relating, of wholeness and health for all. And again, not just in, in this American way of understanding where each individual is healthy and whole and is good with every other individual, but in the holistic and biblical way of understanding where our welfare and our well-being are inseparable from one another's. Whereas the Apostle Paul would write hundreds of years later in the New Testament, we are one body and therefore we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep because we can do nothing else. We are so interconnected and we are so interdependent. Not surprisingly, these verses have inspired some artists to create some beautiful responses. Unfortunately, our screen, our monitor did not work today. Otherwise, I would show you these beautiful pieces, but you can go back on the stream and they will be there, and, and we'll post links to these in the, in the podcast notes. But the first uh, painting that, that I wa was sort of meditating on as I was preaching this, or getting ready to write this, was, is by the Quaker artist Edward Hicks. Um, I, I forget who was who sent it to me a few years ago. I think it was probably Amy. Sounds, it seems like something Amy would do um, to send me this. Uh, but Edward Hicks uh, painted some visual version of this uh, response and reflection on Isaiah 11 62 times over the course of his life. And I think you can still find one version painted in 1834 just down the street in the National Gallery of Art. So you can go check that out. Second, there was a piece that um, is entitled Holy Mountain 3. Holy Mountain 3. It was painted in 1945 by self-taught African-American artist Horace Pippin. This one is at the Hirshhorn Museum, also not far from us. Pippin, in his painting, he added shades and shadows of violence to the backdrop of his painting. A lynching, bombs being dropped, soldiers and a tank. You can almost miss them if you're not looking carefully. 
but Pippin chose to put the depiction of the peaceable kingdom from Isaiah 11 in the forefront of this painting, a, a symbol of not ignoring the awful realities of the world, but in spite of it all, trusting in God's better story to prevail. Now, again, as I said, I'll put these links in the in podcast notes or you can check it out on the stream later or you can pop down to a museum and see them in person. Reflect on them. Take time to reflect on them. The passage of, uh, uh, of Isaiah 11 of God's world to come, it, it parallels Isaiah 25, which says, God will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe tears from every face and he will remove people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. And that passage, Isaiah 25, it also refers to God's holy mountain, this symbol, this image of where God dwells, this idea of where what God wants to happen actually happens. And some of the language that we might use in the New Testament is that of the kingdom of God. Or Isaiah 65, which speaks of a new heaven and a new earth where the old order of things has passed away. And these are passages that get referenced in, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation. And, and the promise there is that God will dwell with us in a new way, in, a, in, a, in an unadulterated, in an unfiltered, in an unfettered way, in person and not just virtually on a screen. These prophecies point to the end. They describe the hope we're yearning for, the, the place we're going to, the reality we are living and working towards. And as such... They can be simultaneously inspiring and depressing because it is where God promises us we are heading and because we are not there yet. The point I want to make this morning from this description of the peaceable realm in Isaiah 11 is this. To be a kingdom community... That is, to be a church that better reflects the kingdom of God, and especially for us in this series, especially a multiracial, multicultural community. And in order to do that, we must recognize our existing instincts and learn new ones. Okay? We must recognize our existing instincts and learn new ones. Think about for a moment the idyllic pastoral setting the prophet Isaiah has just described with all of the animals, the lion, the lamb, the leopard, the goat, the, 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 the wolf, and the cow. Think about all of them dwelling in peace together. Now think about what their instincts are. The wolf with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the lion with the calf. For each of the predators, and we would probably even say it is in their nature, the creature before them is prey. The creature before them is to be killed and consumed. And for each of the baby animals in Isaiah is surely being intentional and in showing the stark contrast between the two. It's not just a sheep or a goat or a cow. It's a baby sheep and a baby goat and a baby cow. The creature before it is a predator to be avoided at all costs, to be run away from, to be feared. In the renewed and remade reality of the kingdom of God, somehow the animal kingdom experiences the shalom of God's kingdom. And yet what is being asked of these creatures, of all of these creatures, seems unnatural. As Eric Law writes, how can a wolf, a leopard, or a lion not attack a lamb or a calf 
or a child for food. At least our fairy tales taught us to believe that. How can a lamb or a calf not run when it sees a lion or a leopard coming close? How can a lion eat straw like an ox when we know the lion is a meat eater? It goes against the animal's instinct to be in this vision of the peaceable realm. And this is where the turn comes. Perhaps, he says, perhaps that is what is required of human beings if we are to live together peacefully with each other. We have talked before in different ways these last few weeks of the importance of knowing your story, of, of, of knowing your story so you know who you are and you know what you're bringing to the larger community. And that is true when we talk about our, our racial and our ethnic snor- stories and, and more broadly as well about your spiritual journey or your, your relational journey or uh, your emotional health history or your struggles with addiction or food or traumas that you have experienced. Where we have been has, m- has much to tell us about who we are. Or to put it more bluntly, where we, we have been shapes us whether we are aware of it or not. Most of the time, unless we've done a lot of healing work, and sometimes even then, our instinctive reactions are echoes of our past. What seems natural to us now is likely what we grew up with, or our trauma responses with, to what we grew up with, or in the best case scenario, our healed responses to the trauma that we grew up with. That is how we cope. To use a a non-race-based example, this is most evident to me when I'm counseling premarital or married couples. When you see the contrast in individuals' ways of dealing with money or thinking about sex or patterns of communication or avoidance thereof or ability to handle conflict or instability, they're almost always reflections of how how their family of origin dealt with those things. How they learned, sometimes unconsciously and subconsciously, how to address those things or not. Now, if you don't pay attention to those connections, it's not that you won't act out in those ways with your partner. It's just that you'll do so unconsciously and likely with a whole lot less patience because you're not even thinking that the way you're reacting may not be the only way or even the healthiest way to respond. And so it is here with recognizing our instincts and learning new ones. That's a critical tool for life in general, okay? Whether identifying triggers for our addictions or short-circuiting emotional flooding or taking time to reflect and respond rather than to reacting rashly. But recognizing our instincts and learning new ones is particularly important in addressing race, which we are doing, especially since pretty much anything to do with race has conflict and uncertainty and the threat or memory, or trigger of hurt, or harm, or trauma itself, however latent or patent, baked into it, built into it. You may have heard of the phrase fight or flight, right? As well, uh, as, as research developed into, the, to use the technical term, the acute stress response sequence, it became fight, flight, or freeze. And then back in 2004, one researcher observed it's actually Step one is freeze, which is hypervigilance. It's actually to try to figure out what's going on. And then step two is flight, if you can, to get away from the cause of the stress. And then if that's not feasible, then to fight the source, followed by stage four, potentially fright or faint or tonic immobility, a.k.a. playing dead, in hopes that the source of stress goes away. 
And I can see the wheels beginning to turn as you think about the ways that you react and respond to stress. This acute stress response sequence that applies to animals as well as humans. And so, again, think about those creatures in, in Isaiah 11, especially those seen as prey. Now think about your instincts when it comes to race, hypervigilance, a high sensitivity to any perceived threat, a, a low tolerance that doesn't, for anything that doesn't fit our expectations or exceeds our comfort zone, or running away, that's pretty self-explanatory, or fighting, arguing terminology or technicalities, or dismissing someone's story or experience, or letting our emotions alone trigger our reactions, or playing dead disengaging and thus refusing to be open to being changed by someone else and perhaps even by God. We need to learn our instincts, particularly when it comes to race, so that where needed, we can learn healthier ones. This is where it's critical to know who we are and where we are. Who we are and where we are, that is identity and context. To quote Eric Law again, it is dangerous for the powerful to identify themselves as the powerless victims. Okay? It is dangerous for the powerful to identify themselves as powerless victims. It's dangerous for those of us with power and privilege to read the Bible as if we were the chosen people of God rather than asking, what if we're Babylon? What if we're Rome? Or for us to immediately associate ourselves with the disciples rather than asking, what if we're the Pharisees or the one in need of healing? Or for us to co-opt the narrative of an oppressed ancient Middle Eastern people with the privilege of middle-class America, we must know who we are and where we are. And a tool that is helpful here is, is called power analysis. Okay, power analysis. Now, power analysis is a tool that's often referenced and utilized in community organizing spheres, but church folk, especially uh, white evangelical church folks or folks who have grown up around white evangelical spaces, can get a little uncomfortable talking about power, right? Some of us will say, I, I don't really have power, I'm just a whatever. Others may reel out that quote that, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which, by the way, is absolutely not in the Bible. Or others may say, well, didn't Jesus just give up all of his power? See, 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 see Philippians 2, and so therefore aren't we supposed to do the same and give up all of our power? And that is one valid response to power, but it is not the only one. See, there are commands that are for all of us, for all of the followers of, of Jesus, commands that cut across lines of gender and privilege and race and education and ability and sexual orientation and more. Those that form our church's mission, for example, love God, love others, make disciples. But there are com commands that are specific to particular contexts as well. For example, when Jesus said to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, he was specifically addressing a young man whose identity and idol was his possessions. And by contrast, Jesus did not command the widow who gave of her last two coins uh, to do so, but he did commend her devotion. Uh, an old professor of mine used to compare it to 
being in an art gallery and, and hearing the instruction of the curator to one of the maintenance crew to tip the painting up a couple inches on the right regarding a slightly askew piece of art. And then that maintenance crew member going around every single piece of art in the gallery and tipping it up a couple inches on the right. Regardless of whether it was off to begin with. Context matters. And power analysis is one tool to recognize our context. And I realize it can be an uncomfortable question for me to say to you, what power do you have? What power do you have? And not just what power do you think you have, but what power are you perceived to have? We all, I think, have some understanding of perceptions of power. However unconscious or subconscious it may be, your perception of power will often be revealed by your attitude or by your behavior, by your instincts, the things that you do before you even think about them. So let me make the implicit explicit with a thought experiment. If we were to separate our church community into rich and poor, who do you think would be perceived to have more power in our context? The multiracial church, the rapidly gentrifying city, capital city of 21st century America. If we were to separate our church into male and female, who would be perceived to have more power? If we were to separate our church into white folks and people of color, who would be perceived to have more power. It is dangerous for the powerful to identify themselves as powerless. And let me say here, if you've ever said, I don't think so-and-so is a thing, I don't think it's real, and again, that can apply to anything, climate change, sexual abuse, demonizing of immigrants, but in this setting and in this series, I don't think white privilege is a thing, I don't think racism is a thing. That is the statement of someone who has power. It is a statement of someone who has not experienced the powerlessness that so many of us have experienced in this country. And if that's you, love of neighbor demands that your response be to listen to their pain and to their story. Not to question, not to interrogate, not to poke at the details, but to say, please tell me more until you understand it, until you are with them, because that is what love does. And that humility, it cuts across every layer of our identity. That humility is needed for all of us because it requires an astuteness and an agility in interacting with each other and recognizing our instincts so we can, as I said, where necessary, respond in healthier ways. And here's why, according to Eric Law. He says, our vision of the peaceable realm, what we see in Isaiah 11, is not based on fear. It's based on the lack of fear. And that lack of fear is created by the even distribution of power the even distribution of power. The lamb is equal to the wolf. The lamb is not there thinking, you know, thank goodness the wolf is having a day off. But who knows what's going to happen tomorrow or when the wolf wakes up from a nap. 
The lamb is equal to the wolf. The, the, the calf is equal to the lion, and therefore they can live peaceably, peacefully together. And he says this, true peace cannot be attained without justice. True peace cannot be obtained without justice, attained without justice. To do justice then is to be able to see and recognize the uneven distribution of power and to take steps to change the system so that we can redistribute power equally. Last week, Watson shared a little bit about how God spoke to him through his identity as a white man in the context of this multiracial church and brought him to a place of initiating the leadership transition that we finalized last summer. And for me, on my part, God also spoke to me as an Asian man who was brought up in a different context from the one I inhabit now. Okay? So, one example, uh, in, in many Asian cultures, silence not saying something can be a sign of dissent, okay? A less direct way of disagreeing. Here in the U.S., silence is agreement. It's complicity. It's non-engagement. Or, or here's another one. I have pretty much never put myself forward for things. Uh, it it, it kind of goes against my, my natural instinct. He was self-aggrandizing. But I've always stepped up when I've been asked. I've always stepped up when there's been a need. Uh, in grad school, I chose not to run for student council because there were other, other folks. But when there was an emergency opening and they asked me to step up, I did it because some, some, somebody needed to do it. And I figured it was a quirk of my deferential personality, you know, uh, until I read and realized that Oh, maybe my deferential personality is actually a result of growing up in a deferential culture. And, and maybe there are other folks who grew up in the culture that I grew up in who share that same quirk, that same deference. Watson recognized that he is perceived to be white. He knew that the temptation would be to pretend that power doesn't exist. Those with power and privilege often are ignorant or choose to be ignorant of the power differential. He chose not to run away. He chose not to play dead. He chose not to scapegoat me when he was going through his own wrestling. But rather he chose to engage the responsibility that had been given to him and to steward his power and his position in the context of this community. And in that instance, that looked like asking me, someone who needed to be asked, to consider taking on the lead role. I am, and am usually perceived to be by others, to be a person of color. I knew the temptation for me would be to refuse power because you know, I didn't know if I could handle it or because I feared what I might do with it, that I might walk down the roads of abuse that others have. I knew that if I were to take this on, I would be opening myself up to critiques in this lead role, and I have been. I've been called anti-white for saying the same things about white privilege that Watson has. Because, well, I think you get it. But I also knew that as a man of color, in a big C church and culture that is still in the grip of patriarchy, there is still a power differ differential there as well. And that this transition was not just mine to say, I got it, I did it but to steward it, to continue to steward it in a way that 
continues us along this journey of distributing power evenly and sets up our church community to do the same and in that way to also be pointing toward the kingdom of God. And that, that is also part of the dynamic of being a kingdom community here in the in-between. And because of the complexities of our identities, because of the context of this multi, all sorts of things community that we're trying to cultivate here, we can shift so quickly along that continuum. And it is a continuum of, of power dynamics, of perceived power, from, from power to powerlessness and back. It, it, and it is a divine gift to train us in humility and agility for the sake of others. But the image of shalom in Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9, is incomplete unless we also read the verses that precede it, okay? Verses that may sound familiar as we approach the season of Advent. This is 11, Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 5. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. The Lord's Spirit will rest upon him, spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. As Christians, we read these verses as a prophecy about Jesus, the chosen one of God, the, the king of the kingdom, the embodiment of, of shalom, of love, of justice, of grace. And as, as Christians, we understand Jesus to be the one who makes the following verses, that vision of the kingdom, even possible through his life, death, and resurrection. I spend a whole other sermon or two unpacking this first part of, of Isaiah 11 about the characteristics of the king whose reign spreads even to the animals with righteousness and faithfulness and the fear of the Lord as his campaign slogans. But let me leave you with two things. First, verse 4. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. The measuring stick for the chosen one of God and by implication for us as the people of God is how we treat the vulnerable and the marginalized. There is power analysis in this statement, in this verse, and I hope this verse is a word of comfort and encouragement to those of us who, particularly on the topic of race here in America, feel needy and feel like we have suffered in the land. God sees our pain. And the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will uphold us with righteousness and equity. The second thing from these first verses, the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of God, that is named in verse 2 and in other places in the Old Testament, is not the same concept that we find developed in the New Testament and beyond of a distinct person of a member of a divine community, okay? In the Old Testament, the idea was that the Spirit of Yahweh God would come upon a particular person for at a particular time to accomplish a particular thing. So examples would be uh, the Judge Samson, 
in defeating the Philistines or the shepherd boy David when he was anointed to become king. Here in Isaiah 11, the Spirit of Yahweh rests upon God's chosen one to enact the reality of God, to prioritize the downtrodden and the taken advantage of in such a deep and transformative way that even the animals respond. And this is what theologian Walter Brueggemann writes. The Spirit of Yahweh is a force that enlivens, gives power, gives energy, gives courage, so that its bearer is recognized as one designated. One who has the capacity to do, get this, what the world believes is impossible. Who generates new historical possibility where none was available. There will be conciliation and peaceableness among these species that have been at war with each other since the beginning of time. Coming King will not only do what the world takes to be possible, but will also do what the world has long since declared to be impossible. Becoming a multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational, multiclass, multi whatever church that reflects the kingdom of God may and can and does seem like an impossible task, especially when we are in the trenches of making and when there are so few examples behind us in history. But that is what we are called forward to. That's what we're invited into by the Spirit of God. More and more, in whatever limited ways we can, this side of Jesus' return, and that requires us to follow the example of Jesus and to be moved by the Spirit of God even in ways that may at first feel unnatural. In ways that require a lot of awareness and a lot of effort to enact. Redemption and renewal and the reality of God beckon. And I think, think of the wolf and the lamb. And I think of the leopard and the goat. And I think of the lion and the calf. As I read the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God of God to be revealed. What is God inviting you into? What are the things that God has put on your heart this morning? What are the things God has been saying to you these last few weeks? What are the things that have come up in your conversations, the things that feel a, 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 little, a little awkward, a little weird, a little uneasy? What are the things that God is saying, I have something for you. I want you to step into it with me. I want you to walk in it with me. For the sake of your own growth, but for the sake of this community. For the sake of those that you will come into contact with. Would you pray with me? Oh God of Shalom, we need you. We need your spirit to make possible the things that we in our limited imaginations and can, can so easily dismiss as impossible or too hard. And God, we might, we might say things like, God, you don't know how, well, you don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know how it still hurts. 
God knows. And whatever God is saying to you, you know, listen to God if the church we, we have an invitation to life and, and, and life that doesn't just begin after we die, but an invitation to a new kind of life in the here and now. Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Would you heal where there have been wounds? Would you give us courage to step out where we are fearful? And conviction to see where we have been wrong. And also we might experience the liberative shalom, the liberative peace of being with you and with one another. We ask these things, we pray these things in the name of the one who made all things possible, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.